0: I'm just going to invite you all to kind of have a quick prayer with me. Holy presence of love, we give thanks for this time to be together. We also recognize how we come in these moments vulnerable, with expectations sometimes, with definitions, with our minds made up with some openness. So instead, we ask that we might be vulnerable and open and curious this morning as we gather in the presence of one another. Amen. So one of the things I think is interesting, when, because we do this this singing bowl, and as some of you don't know the story, but of course, I started using singing bowls back uh, 25, 30 years ago when I started working at hospitals, and I was working with kids who have cancer. And they'd be at camps or at hospitals, and then other kids who had hemophilia, and then it just went on down the line working with pediatric medical camps as a musician, a storyteller, and and kind of an artistic resource. And then going to hospitals and touring as well. And one of the interesting things, of course, that you find when you're in a hospital is how difficult it is to focus on anything but the next anxious moment. You know, because there's there's, uh, monitors beeping, there's all sorts of noise, there's people interrupting your space. It's a very anxious, distractible space. And so one night, I was at a camp, and I was using the singing bowl just as a fun way of creating a sound effect to a story I was telling, and one of the kids later on said, could I borrow that? And the kid, it was a young teenager, he borrowed it, and he took it to his cabin, and he played with it all night long. Now, at first, it was kind of, you know, annoying, because he was just like, look how much noise I can make with this. But eventually, something happened. Eventually, he found it relaxing. He actually began to find it kind of a relaxing tone, just listening to that tone. And sure enough, after a p- couple of years, I, I got the idea that we could donate these to kids in hospitals that would want them. And they'd have to be taught how to use them without making too much noise or else they'd start freaking out nursing staff, um, thinking something else had gone off. But in fact, the kids found themselves using them at the hospital, using them at the home, just small ones that had very small light tones as a way of both feeling the vibration, right, and then also focusing their minds for a little while, just taking deep breaths. And that alone increased the quality of their experience there in the hospitals. So when I, when I use a bowl like this, for me, it's partly in that spirit that I use it. It's not anything magical. It's not something, you know, pagan or, or sort of... Myst- it's, it's mystical in the sense that it invites us to pay attention. And so I love kind of playing with these things. It might be a tone that you could have at home or an insight timer on the app that you can get. But that's the idea of using these kinds of things and and the whole idea of prayer i'm changing my mind about constantly i'm trying to figure out what is prayer exactly i remember once being invited by a good friend of mine who knows my rather progressive and secular kind of orientation to everything i like to decompose things and by the way not deconstruct i've, I've gotten rid of the word deconstruct deconstruct carries bad t- you know connotations with it which i don't think is the case but i like the word decompose because it's natural it's reality. Things come apart. Things fall away. Things die. But you know what? Something new always grows in its place. So I like the idea of decompose. <laughs> so my faith is decomposing. It has been over the years. But it's becoming something new. And so once I was invited to do this prayer, and I remember walking into the room, and, and it, was a, it was a friend of mine who knows me well, another, another pastor who says, Tom, I want you to do the prayer this, this evening for the blessing for all of our friends here. And I looked at him and I said, Really? He said, I'd like you to do the prayer. And I said, you want me to do like a prayer prayer? And he said, yeah, would you do a prayer? And I said, but you know, we're all friends here. You know me. You really want me? He said, I want you to do th-. I said, Linda does a much better prayer. And he looked at me and I said, all right. And I took a deep breath and I said, let's all take a deep breath. And I said, some of you know I, well. No, I know well. Some of you don't know as well. But I know what it means to be human. I know what it means to be a part of this creation. I know how our lives can have hidden things in them that we don't always bring to the surface, and we carry them like burdens, and other things we experience as joy, like this moment that we have together. So I invite this moment to wash over those other moments, just for a time, to remind us we're more than those other moments we sometimes carry around." And then I said, Amen. The guy next to me looked at me and said, that's the best damn prayer I've heard in a long time. (laughs) So, I, I mean, I'm just being vulnerable and honest here because this is the way that this is, the, this is why I think we do what we do here in 1111, is to find a way to be more authentically engaged with what we understand as our spirituality and as our faith after the life and teachings of Jesus, after the traditions that many of us grew up with in the church. Where are we now with that? And it's in that same light that I want to look at transfiguration this morning. So I want to bring up this first picture because I talked about it in my e-blast this week. I just told the story... But I love this. The caption is not shown below, but in the caption below, she says, you've changed. (laughs) Now, it's obviously a a fun tongue-in-cheek and a fun pun. But um, it got me thinking because it came out at the beginning of the week, which was, of course, was Valentine's, right? And Valentine's carries with it that, that interesting paradox, if you will, you know, where some, there's so much expectation at the same time. There's also joy and delight, and then there's also guilt and shame, and then also a sense of loneliness and awkwardness or loss and pain. It's just a real day of baggage, You know, and so how do you participate in that as a moment, as an invitation to actually see something powerful, you know, that's beyond all of the trappings and the superficiality and all of that stuff? And so I love this as a way to just sort of introduce that. A couple of weeks ago, I had a birthday. I think, I'm not sure if I shared this in here, but I had a a birthday, and um, it it was my uh, double digit birthday. I won't tell you which. You can think I'm 55 if you like. And, um, (laughs) I got a call from my son who FaceTimed me with my granddaughter who's four years, five years old, almost five years old. And she, uh, it was on Facebook. Linda posted it on her page on Facebook. And so we got this, this. Uh, it wasn't a video, it was a video she, they sent. And it just had, apparently they'd gone to our house, my son and uh, his two daughters had gone to my house, our house. And they'd found their way to the Hope Chest and they pulled out the old wedding pictures and so it had her looking at the wedding pictures, and it, you could hear my, da- my son saying, well, Maeve, who is that? And she said, I don't know. No, who's that? Who's that? Well, that's Oma, that, Linda. He said, well, who's that at the wedding? I don't know. He said, that's Datto. That's not Datto. No, that's datto. That's my grandfather. Now. She said, that's he said, that's datto. She said, that's not daddo. And she got really defiant. He said, Molly, that, I mean Maeve, that is Dat- that is not Datto. <laughs> that is Oma. That's not Datto. Who's she with? That's not Datto. And then he just said, happy birthday. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, it it really is interesting because it got me thinking about all of the lives we live and all the ways people see us, right? When we're in high school, we're seen one way. When we're in college, we're seen another way. When we're married, we're seen another way. When we're much older, we're seen another way. If we grow up with people and over a period of time, we are allowed to sort of see ourselves evolve, decompose, (laughs) and evolve again, right? And we're not always the same, but it's a great reminder that life is impermanent that life is full of change, and that's just the reality of life. And the invitation is to see what's wondrous about that as opposed to what's disappointing. So it wouldn't be surprising that later that week, this was two weeks ago when I was in Del Norte, Colorado at my brother-in-law's place. My brother-in-law brother have, brother have a place out there. And my brother-in-law happened to be there with us that time, and we went to a grocery store there in the little town. And the, a woman walked up who works with them, and she came in and she said, hi, Stan. And Stan said, I want you to meet my brother. And she looked at me for a long time, and then she said, wait a minute, that's not Michael. That's my brother, Michael. He looks just like Michael. And, and, and Stan said, that's right, they do look alike. And I said, yeah, we're 18 months apart. I do look a lot like my younger brother. Oh, no, but you're a lot shorter. <laughs> and I smiled and said, yes, I am. <laughs> I mean, we get all of these wonderful reminders that we're not what we, you know, maybe we're not what we want to be, or maybe we shouldn't want to be anything but what we actually are. And even that is transitory. Even that is changing. I have a couple other quick images just to remind me, just kind of, I thought were funny reminders. The heaviest burdens that we carry are the thoughts in our head, right? That's true. That's really what we get, like, you know, again, Anne Lamott. I don't like going in my brain because it's a bad neighborhood in there. Uh, The next one, I love this one. When I look at all the stars, it's hard for me to believe that I'm really the center of the universe. (laughs) Come on, who here doesn't want to think that from time to time? Or always. Anyway, all right, next one. I love this too. Can you describe these countless wasted hours that ultimately make up the bulk of your life? (laughs) Lost and found. James Joyce had it this way when he started off his book Ishmael, if you all have read that novel. I mean, the short story. I said Ishmael. Dubliners. The Dubliners is one of his short story collections. And he said, Mr. Mr. Duffy lived just a short distance from his body. (laughs) So when the disciples go up the mountain... They're invited, the three of them, by the way. Three is the great sacred number, right? It's the great number that's uh, sort of a universal formula. You have the Trinity, you have the three. You, here you have uh, beginning, middle, and end. You almost have three kinds of events that happen before the final transformation happens in all of our folk tales: three little pigs, Goldilocks, the three bears. I mean, all of these things, three is a very powerful number in the world, especially in Western cultural narrative. And so here you have the three disciples going up, with Jesus. And they're important disciples because it's Peter and it's John and it's James and it's sort of like key figures in the early church movement. And keep in mind, this is written in retrospect, right? This is written 30 or 40 years after Jesus' death. So these are stories trying to understand who Jesus was when Jesus wasn't what everyone thought Jesus was. Because everyone thought Jesus was the Messiah, now, in that, in that Jewish culture, the Messiah meant the Davidic king who was going to come take over things, who was going to come back and reestablish the kingdom the kingdom of God, the reign of God, under a, a godly chosen, a God-ordained leader, and that would naturally be in the Davidic line, because that had been the history of Judaism for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And so that was the challenge. That was the belief system, and Jesus wasn't that. So the transfiguration has several points. It has several reasons for being there. One of them being, it could be to confirm. I mean, it was written as a confirmation. That's why Elijah and Moses appeared, because they're they're justifications. They link Jesus up with the Old Testament and the Davidic line. Or maybe it was because they just wanted to justify that Jesus was actually the Messiah. Or maybe it had something else to do with the power of what a story reminds us of when we can hear it for its deeper meanings. That, I think, is the challenge that we have as 21st century people. I mentioned in the last, last week that we also celebrated Galileo's, well, not celebrated, but remembered Galileo's trial because he was convicted in 1633 in the second week of February, the third week of February. He was actually convicted and, and then charged or, or, or um, um, uh, um, whatever. Prison. His sentence was house arrest and all of his books were banned and put away, locked away. Especially the one in which he proved that the earth is not the center of the universe, but in fact, the sun is the center of our solar system. The earth revolves around the sun. Very controversial because actually humanity is God's chosen center of everything. Anthropomorphism is like everywhere, right? Or anthropocentrism is everywhere. We think it's all about us. There's a thousand million, billion other creatures out there that will probably outlive this human species. There's a whole universe out there of mystery that we have no idea So when we boldly go forth into our days, perhaps our boldness should be tempered by a great deal of humility and wonder. What if, in fact, that's what the transfiguration story is inviting, is the invitation to go into our moments with wonder and not with this sense of we're in charge, it's all about us. The minute that Peter sees Jesus being transfigured, he says, let's build some altars here. Let's build some tents. Let's build a worship space, and we'll put you in a box and worship you. And it disappears, right? That's what seems to happen. All right. So a couple of, a couple of uh, some, about 10 years ago, uh, 20 years ago, a couple of decades ago, I was in Ireland and I did a 30-day trip on my bicycle around Ireland by myself. I've told you all some of these stories before. One of the genius, wonderful people that I met that was a total surprise to me was my roommate. I was 40 at the time and he was, or 42, and he was um, like 21 or 22. He was a Japanese student in Ireland at the cultural center on the far northwestern coast of Kill in Donegal where it was a very primitive area, and we were all there to study Gaelic for seven days. it took seven days out of my trip to stay there and study Gaelic. Tiny little one-street town, went to a coastal hotel down on the coast, kind of a little resort area at the coast, but the rest of the town was very small and simple. And there was a cultural center, there was a great cathedral and a cemetery, Catholic church and cemetery, and then there were four pubs that lined the street. (laughs) So they had their priorities. So during the day, we'd go study Gaelic, and during night, we'd go hang out at the pubs, and then he and I were a roommate at a bed and breakfast. He spoke broken English, but he was just a joy to be around because he was so different and interesting, and yet there was a naivete about him. I just thought, you're so naive. I mean, there's, there's so much richness here in culture, and he was just eating everything up. One night, we went to the pub, and we listened as a woman stood up there because the pub is a cultural center, really. A pub is where families and everyone gather, children, adults, everyone. And after a time, finally, a young woman, they encouraged her. They took a lot of, of, of goading until finally she stood up and she started singing Feravata, which is a beautiful little haunting song. Feravata, Snow Oroella, Feravata, Snow And it goes on for a while. And it's a woman standing on the coast, looking over the cliffs, across the great ocean to America, where her lover has traveled. And she doubts she'll ever see him again. That story of brokenness seems to be pretty prominent in the western, western shores of Ireland. Ireland has a rich history of sort of being abused and cast out. You know, it's, it, all of the conflicts that went with them in England over the years. And that land is rough and scrabble. It's just rocky soil. If you've been there, cliffs and the Atlantic Ocean crashing into the cliffs. And so she stood there watching the ebb and flow of the, of the waves as she sang the song. And when this young woman sang the song, she was a, a, a teacher or a clerk, something. Just, just, she, but she wasn't a singer. And yet when she sang the song, you never heard anything so pure. And there were tears in the room and afterwards great cheering. One night after that, we did, that happened two or three times that she sang that song. One night after that, I was making my way home back to the B&B and I was by myself. It was about 11 o'clock. And, it, and someone came toward me in the dark the streets were dark except for occasional street lamps, and they, they were in the shadows, and they came toward me, a little terrifying, very cold feeling as I approached them. And when I approached them, I said, Dwitch in, in Gaelic, which is a way of saying hello, and I said, dwitch, and they didn't say anything back, and I said, Giazwitsch, again, very much louder, and this time they just grunted at me, as if angry, and kept walking. But I noticed the walk was stiff. I noticed he had on an overcoat. I noticed that he walked into, this, into the Catholic cemetery, and I noticed he disappeared. Well, now it was kind of foggy. He kind of went over into the woods or into the cemetery, kind of disappeared behind stones and such. I didn't see him again the next night. And the next night after that, I went to the one of the pub owners, and I said, Patrick, and he said, yes, Tom. I said, Patrick, I think I saw somebody last night, two nights ago, that kind of gave me pause. I mean, I wouldn't say this because I don't believe this, but if I knew better, the guy looked dead. And he was walking, and, and he kind of, he didn't smile, he didn't look anything. He got a very serious look on him, and he looked at me, and he says, describe him for me. We know most of the dead people in our town that walk about, <laughs> and so I described him, and he said, "I don't know that one." And he asked around. And he says, "Do you know anybody about six floor?" You know, just grunts instead of says anything." And and they were all kind of looking at each other, looked at him, says, "No, we don't know that." And so, so about a, about four days passed, and then on the fourth night. Uh, Yutaka Ozawa, the Japanese student in linguistics, who was my roommate, and myself got together five other people from the cultural center that had been part of the 12-member class, and we went out on a search for the dead guy that I saw walking one night. And it was a fun, amazing, wonderful time as we walked about in the cemetery. We walked throughout the village. Villagers would actually come out of their house because it was about 9 o'clock at night. And we'd be walking along with sat- sat- flashlights. And they'd say, are you looking for the dead guy? And we'd say, yeah, well, good luck. Good luck to you. And it was just a fun evening as we were walking all about. And, of course, we never saw anybody. And then at the end of the whole trip, it was one night before we were all living. And Patrick came over to me and he says, Tom, Tom, look over there leaning up against the wall would that be the dead guy that you saw? And sure enough, it looked exactly like him there in the light of the pub. And he was sitting there, and he says, well, you know, he's deaf, and he doesn't. He has trouble speaking, so he doesn't say much. But we all love him, and he's a great fella. His name is, his name is I can't remember the name, it was Jimmy or something, but he says, you know, he's really fun, and, and everyone loves him. We all kind of figured that may be who you might have thought it was. He's a bit suspicious at night when he's by himself. But we all thought it was great fun to go looking for dead people anyway. (laughs) So afterwards, I got back to my room, and my roommate, Yutako Ozawa, who's a linguist, he looked at me and he says, this was so much fun. We got to look for dead people in, in, in Ireland. I've never done that before. You know, and he was just laughing at the whole silliness of it. And then he remembered the beauty of the song, and we were just recounting all these things, and he said something, a phrase that I want you to remember. It's a Japanese phrase, but I want you to remember the idea. He smiled and he said, mono no arare. arare, arare is hard to say, mono no arare. And I said, what does that mean? And he said, arare. And I said, well, how do you spell that? He says, A-W-A-R-E. I said, aware? <laughs> he says, arare. He says, not aware. And I said, but it sounds like aware. And he says, no, it means things are what they are and then they aren't. But while they are, they're lovely. So it's kind of the ephemeral impermanence. And it's, it's kind of a way of saying like, that's just the way things are, if we were to say that around here, except that it carries a much deeper sense of attention. And I want to leave you with this last idea before I bring the band up. I'll go ahead and bring up the band. They can come on up here. But I want to leave you with this last idea of how we practice this idea of Transfiguration that I experienced not just in moments like being in Japan, but I experienced it with the woman at the grocery store when she says, you look exactly like your brother, but a whole lot shorter. Or my, my granddaughter who says, that's not you, because it wasn't me. This is me now, and this is how she'll remember me. But other people remember me another way, and I remember them other ways, and we're all of that, and we're none of that. And so I, li- I like this idea that I read once, That if we stop seeing life and God and sacredness as this vertical thing, but more as this horizontal reality, imagine that every moment and everything is like a pop-up picture book. Do you remember those? And every time you lift that moment up, something you didn't expect is there. Everything we encounter, every moment is like those little picture books and an invitation to just lift up and see what else is there. How can we practice being present enough to our moments to see what is in fact right there in front of us? Mono no aware. Let's get to the last quote here, if you if you don't mind. There we go. This is the way that John O'Donohue put it. John O'Donohue, the wonderful Celtic poet and writer, Christian writer, no longer with us. To grow is to become more than you have been. To transform uncertainty into presence. And allow what is false to fall away. The way Jesus might have put it is, let's go up in the mountain. And by the way, everything is a mountain. <laughs> everything is a mountaintop experience and opportunity. Let's go up there and see what we see. Oh, but don't, don't cling to it. Just be present to it. Be compassionate. And be willing to let it go. So that you can be present to the next moment. This is how I think we're invited to make our way homeward transfiguring life all the way home this is how this is how we do it so the last thing i want to leave you with an instruction pay attention this week to your breath and your body and pay attention to all your moments take an opportunity to take a deep breath count to 5 inhale count to 7 exhale and then see what's around you i'm going to invite you to do this often. Your homework is just to do it once every day. Whatever you see, don't just say, oh, that's just that. Lift it up, metaphorically. See what else is there for about three minutes. Every moment is an opportunity to experience the sacred and transfigure our way home, amen.